Thanks everyone for joining us again. Another exciting week um, for everyone across the country. I think in Washington D.C., of course, um, there's been a lot of very large um, moving objects that are happening, but the moving objects are still moving. Um, there's not a lot written down on paper just yet. Um, the uh, leadership, by that I mean leadership, is crafting a fourth stimulus package, um, and Michael Thomas will go into that. Um, and I think all very good things um, uh, are taken into context of the political um, uh, discussions that are being had and sort of the negotiating chips that are being played. Um, there is still a lot of um, authoritative statements about the fact that state and local governments did not receive enough uh, of direct funding in the initial CARES Act. That there is, a, 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 I think, a bipartisan recognition that the $150 billion did not cut the mustard and that there is um, a, 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 a revenue challenge ahead of us and therefore a public service provision um, challenge ahead of us. And so there is a fair amount of conversations and recognition across um, many um, uh, members of Congress. And I say that because um, yesterday um, I had the opportunity to present to the select uh, revenue subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and I do think that they are very interested in making sure that together um, we craft a good package, that we have something that we can move forward on, and that also um, the implementation of the previous package is going on as planned. But this is all very important. And one more very important thing I wanted to make sure to let you all know we now have a new little baby member of the federal liaison center michael bellarmino welcomed a baby girl into the world this morning <laughs> um everybody's doing great um and i asked him for a picture but he's like you know doing stuff right now you know just had a baby so um very excited for him we're very excited for the addition to the fl uh, gfoa team and uh, to the flc team and i will Pass along all the regards I see coming in. Um, uh, thank you. Um, and again, thank you for your attention to this. With that, I want to pass it over to Michael Thomas to start us talking about the next additional direct funding bill that we may see. Thank you so much, Emily. And thank you, everybody, for joining us again. Our week in Washington here every Friday. I've really come to look forward to my Fridays now to get everybody together and just disseminate as, as much as I can here. Um, because there can only be one Michael, I'm here to uh, deliver where uh, Bellarmino may have left off uh, last week and to continue to color our context for where things are going with stimulus for. Uh, he didn't actually have a baby. I just beat him in an arm wrestling competition. He's been shamed. So there can only be, there can only be one Michael. Anyway, levity aside. So last week, uh, Mike brought up the, the FFCRA, uh, which is the uh, legislation that was passed that allowed private sector employers uh, to um, get tax credits back for the expanded use of uh, family medical leave, uh, sick time. Uh, we do have a uh, legislation now, a bill number for a, uh, a bill that's going to basically remove the uh, prohibition of using uh, those tax credits for, for state and local governments. Uh, so what I wanna do here as sort of a, uh, a uh, Two birds, one stone here is, is talk about this while we navigate over to our uh, advocacy uh, page as part of the COVID response resource page that we have going to show you guys what's changed there and, and to give you guys the resources you need uh, to understand who's 
who's involved, who the players are, and, and who we need to, to, to gin up support with. Uh, so I'm going to uh, grab my screen here, barring any sort of technical difficulties. Okay, just to confirm, I am live, correct? You are live. So on our, again, our, our gfoa.org homepage here, we'll see in our gray box up there, Coronavirus Resource Center, click our little link. This is my, my baby, if you will, no pun intended. We go down on our box, the side here under COVID-19 items, the place where you'll find our news updates, which we keep uh, updated as, as we can every morning and afternoon, FAQs, ad resources, everything you might need. Under FAQ and advocacy resources here, I know you're in the right spot because you'll see our nice little skyline of Washington, D.C., which I am unreasonably proud of. Under congressional advocacy, this is where I would like to start putting and listing uh, our, our bill numbers and the sort of the, um, the the bullet points of, of what's going on here uh, and, and the contents of the bill as it comes. Uh, as Emily alluded to there, um, we're having a very busy uh, second half of this week uh, in a run up to what's certainly to be an even busier week uh, next week once the uh, Senate comes back into Washington and, and reconvenes uh, on Monday, keeping in mind uh, that the House is still not going to be coming in. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has told us or has said publicly that it will be at least the week after next week before uh, all House members return. Uh, but I digress. You can see here HR 6643. It says co-sponsors because there is no text available right now. Uh, again, as Emily had said, they are crafting plans. They're, they're making their broad strokes. Uh, and obviously, everything else will be filled in as we go along. Um, next week, we, we could see a lot of that happening. And of course, we'll be updating as, as we get information. So the only real text there is for HR 6643, which is sponsored by Representative Schneider out of Illinois, is to allow tax credits to federal, state, and local governments for required paid sick leave and required paid family leave, medical leave. What I have for you now is the co-sponsors. Clicking this link will get you to good old congress.gov, a great resource for just tracking legislation in general. What's important now is our co-sponsors. We have 108. Obviously, there are far more members of Congress than that. Uh, but this is a good way to see if your representative is, in fact, signed on. Um, pretty self-explanatory. Go down the list. If your person is not listed, then you have some uh, optional homework, if you would like, uh, to uh, contact your representative and, and let them know that this is important, that it needs to be a part of the next stimulus bill. Um, I can only imagine, because this is not really seen as being, you know, terribly unpopular, that our co-sponsor numbers will increase next week uh, once the Senate gets back in and Washington is kind of uh, moving and jiving a, a bit more. So just three quick clicks get you to FAQ advocacy, and this will show you everybody who's involved. And again, as more information comes in, we'll build it out and try to provide the most pertinent information possible to make us all uh, effective advocates here. Going back here so I can show you guys a little bit more of our web page. 
Uh, Thomas, I think what's really interesting, um, just looking at your co-sponsors and unique uh, to this legislation is that it's extremely bipartisan. Yes. That there is, uh, it's almost one in one, which is ideal. Again, uh, because our, our committees of jurisdiction uh, are going to be appropriations, financial services, and the all-powerful ways and means. These are listed here. You'll find all the members of all these committees. This is just taking you straight to their individual web pages. See who's there. See who you, you know, need to provide your advocacy towards. These are the right people. They're the ones who are going to end up making the decisions. I'm sure all of us are at least a little bit familiar with um, who, the power behind ways and committee, uh, ways and means, and, and the other committees of jurisdiction. These are the people that we're going to need to talk to uh, outside of your own uh, individual representation and, and your districts there. And just while we're on it, just to give you guys an idea of what we still have here, you know, we keep our advocacy letters that uh, we partner with, with, uh, you know, our, our many uh, partners in, in the big seven, our state and local representations, utilities, uh, everybody we work with, if, if we have a letter we're joining on, we're going to try to get it here as soon as possible. In addition, uh, we have all of these week in Washington uh, uh, reportings listed every week. After this is over, I'm hoping, I, I believe our, our guy Timothy can get this up by the end of the day. Uh, certainly by Monday, we'll have the next one up. So if you need to reference some uh, information, go back. I know that I watch these regularly to make sure that I didn't say something incorrect uh, or to make sure that it just went well in general. Uh, again, this is where we're gonna go for our advocacy. And I, I wanna keep building this out as we get more and more. Uh, and as though I, I need to remind all of you, Things are moving fast, uh, so it's 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 always good to take a look at it once, twice, ten times a day, whatever you're comfortable with. And we'd urge you to use those advocacy letters as templates for your outreach as well. Yes, absolutely. The second piece of uh, of legislation that we need to talk about, the most uh, the biggest piece of legislation to talk about, is the Menendez bill, or what is going to should be titled, unless they make a change by Monday. Uh, the SMART bill or SMART Act, I'm sorry, that stands for, and I'm going to refresh my memory here so that everybody uh, can know what to look for. State and Municipal Aid for Recovery and Transition. That is what we're looking for here. It doesn't have any text. It does not have a bill number. Um, we can only assume that next week uh, that stuff is going to start getting filled in. Uh, there's even, you know, a little bit of a, of a dearth of, of even news headlines on this. But luckily, uh, with our, our many partners and tentacles in D.C., we were able to get some information to kind of get an idea of what sort of uh, framework we'll be working with here. Now, a good portion of it is going to be a, a lot like it was before uh, with the $150 billion that came out of the CARES Act. A uh, portion of it is basically going to be doubling that 150 billion. But here, let me get off my, my sharing so I can get into the nitty gritty here and give you some more details. There we go. All right. For our partners, we're able to uh, let us know that, well, leadership kind of, they've, they've heard some of what we've, we've been hearing from you guys, from, from our membership partners uh, across the country, that the sort of the overlapping Venn diagram of where funding is going and the problems that it caused, the confusion of population overlap and, and where does this money come from, this bucket and what have you. Uh, we were given the impression that they want to look at things in three distinct tranches. 
They want money distinctly set aside for the states. They want money specifically set aside for localities. And they want cities and counties to be separate from one another so that compared to the, the last injection of funding, uh, you'd be able to, quote unquote, you know, double dip. Uh, what does that mean? It means that we don't have to sort of deal with the, um, if you have a large city inside of a large county, you know, doing a quick math of this population minus this population, this fund's going to come from the state, then it's going to get taken out of the county fund. It was a lot to go through and it made it hard to understand exactly what these allocations were going to be. Uh, anyway, get, getting into how this, this might go down here. Now that they've had some time to uh, understand where uh, the impacts have been greatest for COVID, uh, where the needs are going to be greatest projected into the future, uh, part of how this money is may be allocated, and, and bear with me when I say may, probably, potentially, possibly, because this is all stuff on the whiteboard for right now, is that we'd be looking at 150 billion, like I said, uh, that would be bolstering the 150 billion that was already allocated through the CARES Act. Uh, and it will be eligible for loss of revenue. Uh, if you go perusing onto to Google, your favorite news sites, and you find uh, information or news articles, it's probably coming out of Louisiana uh, because obviously they've been hit very hard uh, by the crisis. And they've also taken a particularly a tough hit to their, their tax base because it's reliance on tourism. Uh, so with that said, it, it is uh, a boon to most that loss of revenue uh, will be eligible uh, for these funds. At a minimum, it would be looking like uh, states directly are going to be getting, you know, at least about $400 million, um, or I'm sorry, let's see here. Uh, that's correct, my apologies. The, take, the takeaway here is that the money is going to be spread out based on a, a few sort of uh, considerations. The size of the population, per capita of national population, and then areas where they've been hit the hardest. So you'd be looking at sort of a multiplier for states that have higher infection rates. Uh, so that would mean New York, California, Louisiana. Uh, again, they haven't sussed it out. They don't have a formula just yet but their intention is to make sure that if you are harder hit, you're going to have a, a greater share made available to you. So far, we're looking at a direct breakdown uh, of, of um, about 80 billion going to states directly, uh, shared based on population, uh, about another 30 billion going to states directly based on national population, and then again, another 30 billion that's going to be debbied out based on how hard everybody was hit. Uh, for localities, it's looking at about 50, 60 billion. Uh, that's going to be half for cities, towns, villages, and then the other half going towards counties. Uh, that means we just have distinct funds. And what was really encouraging here is that leadership, and I believe it was uh, Speaker Pelosi, who publicly recognized that, you know, as we know, state, cities, and counties all have very specific responsibilities in the context of COVID response. She recognized that states, their you know, number one responsibility, their number one priority where their resources go is overall emergency management. Counties, you know, they deal with uh, networking and, and, and healthcare response, specifically thinking for hospitals. Cities, you know, they have to deal mitigating 
homelessness uh, as it has been affected by the COVID crisis or um, housing. You know, it's, it's, it's really encouraging that they're understanding um, kind of how those levels of government work together and that they needed to be treated uh, differently. They need to be given distinct avenues of funding uh, so there isn't any more confusion. There isn't any squabbling over who's going to get these funds. How are they going to get used? Because, I mean, we already have uh, enough time and effort spent. And I have this money. Do I feel good enough about spending it? Uh, I believe we believe that for saying that publicly, the, the outline that we've managed to get from our partners, that it's indicative of them realizing that we need to make, you know, more lines between our, our pots of money so that funds can be used quickly and we can reduce the amount of, of time you know wasted on on red tape and wondering you know is is this money really mine is there going to be an issue you know should I, I, I be audited or, or something along those lines and forgive me as I, as I go through my notes here like I said there was a ton of things to go through here In addition to that, uh, our partners in NACWA and the AWWA, who are representing uh, water utilities across the country, it's important, uh, I we wanted to get it out there, that we have been in communication with them as they have uh, appealed directly to Democratic leadership, Republican leadership, and that they want to make sure that utilities are included as, you know, specifically, distinctly. Uh, in the next stimulus bill, as there has been a feeling that they you know, haven't exactly had the consideration that they would have liked. Uh, we have our finger on that pulse and, and certainly uh, utilities, you know, they, they more than just need a little bit. They need a lot of help because they're kind of getting hit and it's, it's going a little bit uh, unnoticed here. So that advocacy is ongoing. take us back here and share our screen one more time because I want to pull up a specific advocacy letter uh, that we received just recently and I apologize here I'm getting alerts um, this happened last Friday like right when we have our, our week of Washington I start getting alerts from uh, different grant programs uh, from FEMA and HHS I'll cover that here in a little while but let me go back to the screen share and I want to show you guys this letter that we're looking at that we'd like uh, to get your eyes on as well if I can get myself to cooperate with myself All right, going back to our handy dandy FAQ and advocacy resources here. So beyond uh, our friends at NACWA and the AWWA uh, advocating for having utilities including in the fourth stimulus bill, there's also a push to include uh, cybersecurity funding uh, that is needed as a result of COVID-19 response. We have a letter, we have it posted, we are signed on. Uh, it is just what it sounds. This is a simple, direct appeal to ensure that the next stimulus bill does include direct funding. Because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's all of this, it, it waterfalls, it cascades down. There's so many little things that are going to require bolstering of, of resources, and cybersecurity is going to be one of them. Uh, this is just another, another way to advocate, another way to, uh, to get our voices heard, and, and that's what things are all about right now. And before I, I, I shift off here to Myrene, Emily, is there anything about the Mendendez-Cassidy uh, bill that I'm perhaps uh, I'm leaving out here? No, if you can see in the chat, um, I just kind of stuck the, uh, the press release from Menendez's office. It's pretty articulate. It describes um, 
sort of in detail his vision on that 500 billion. The other thing I would mention is um, Nancy Pelosi famously last night said, you know what, <laughs> I don't think 500 billion is gonna cut it. I think we're looking at the trillion dollar range. And I think that the reason that she said that was because I, you know, the states have predicted nearly $560 billion shortfall, and that's just the states. The mayors are saying they're looking at 250,000, of course, I mean, 250 billion in need, but of course they're only talking about the cities and not the county. So I think that Nancy Pelosi has taken a very thoughtful approach to saying, I know that they're, they're at, at the end of the day has to be a price tag associated with this, but we think that it's, it, it needs to double at least, if not multiple, have a 10 time multiplier since our last effort because of what states and localities are looking at ahead of us. And before I, I get uh, ahead of myself and, and ahead of uh, Mayor Reading here, of course, you know, last week you guys had a lot of excellent questions. And if it was in my power, I would have emailed you all in directly and given you the answers that you needed. Uh, but believe you me, um, our, our federal partners, they are they're swamped. They don't always have the answers that we need. The work that we do, the work that you all do, it is specific uh, to them. It is, it is uh, very granular. We are going to mount an effort here to try to get us resources that are useful, uh, that are reliable for getting those, those really just granular level questions uh, for, you know, Counting standards, uh, making sure that uh, you know this fund goes in the right spot. We're categorizing what we're purchasing in response effort. We, I, I have not forgotten those questions. Uh, it is simply that every time I have I've gone to my contacts, I am met with um, that's an excellent question. We need to have answers for that. I don't have it right now, but keep us open with lines of communication. So again, if, if more questions, the better. And as soon as I have valuable reasonable resources all of you will be the first to know and it will absolutely be on the COVID response page i'll get to double back and talk a little bit more uh, about uh, some funding opportunities that literally have uh, hit my inbox in the past uh, five to ten minutes uh, but while i collect my wits on that i'm going to go ahead and pass it to Maureen, uh for, for an update on some additional details Thank you, Thomas. So on our last call, there were several questions about how the initial $150 billion of the coronavirus relief fund was being spent. So we wanted to present you with this document today, and I'm going to share my screen so you can look along. I think that does it. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Is everyone viewing a document? Okay. <laughs> okay, so this is how the state of Alaska has broken down their funding. And I'm just going to give, just going to briefly run through it to give you an idea. So as we already know, all funding provided to the state is to be used for items that are considered necessary expenses resulting in the pandemic. So here we have commerce, direct municipal relief, Funding will be allocated using existing state distribution methods and in which 45% of the state's funding will go to local governments right there. And then you go on to small businesses relief. Where Alaska is using a portion to bolster their conduit issuers loan programs for small businesses. 
If we go down a little further, we have the breakdown of education, transportation, emergency grants to local education agencies that were impacted by COVID-19. We have child nutrition, federal transit administration grants, aviation administration, rural airport system maintenance, airport grants. So as you can see how they've kind of broken this down, just to give you an idea. Um, let me just, I just lost myself. How do we stop the sharing? Here we go. Okay. Right. And just to add to that, earlier this week, the governor of Washington state announced that local governments would receive $300 million from the state's federal stimulus funding as they had not received any direct distribution under the CARES Act. And in recognizing the critical position cities and counties are in during this time, he stated that expenses could go towards staffing, quarantine sites, and medical equipment for healthcare providers or first responders. And then just to reiterate um, what Michael Thomas was saying, this type of information really adds to our overall efforts in coordinating everything. I know he's been calling directly to state organizations, and we are in the process of connecting with our state GFOAs and consolidating useful contacts for state response agencies. And you know, whether that be strictly state response or regional response, the idea is we are working toward consolidating everything in order to better direct your questions. But as you all probably are well aware, and also as Thomas had mentioned earlier, there's a lot going on on the federal level. And with things moving so quickly, it's been difficult for us to establish those lines of communication. But we certainly are and will continue to try our best. And in addition to that, if you have an outline of how you intend to spend your relief funds, or if there is any additional information in your state about distributing funds, please do share that information if you can, as that would be something we could utilize in broadening the understanding of how the relief funds are being used. And I'm just gonna throw it back to you, Emily. Thank you. So, um, so, so, Maureen, Maureen's point here, um, just to um, maybe build on Maureen's point that, you know, we, we're getting trickles, we're getting a little bit of information about how states are using the funds, provided the guidance that we've received, the limited guidance that we've received from um, Treasury. Um, I am aware of two separate efforts that are happening at the state level, uh, both with NASC and with NASBO. Um, of, of trying to provide an aggregate perspective of how states are planning on spending uh, the coronavirus relief fund. I wanted to take a step back really quick. I mentioned at the very beginning of the call, um, I had the privilege of presenting to the Select Revenue Subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee. And I just wanted to share with you some of the questions that the congressional representatives were asking. Um, the key point of the conversation was really <laughs> Break down letters that GFOA has sent to the Hill to say, what are your priorities? What are your priority asks? And what kind of role might the Ways and Means Committee have in introducing tax titles into the Coronavirus 4 Relief Act? So, you know, this is the Nancy Pelosi $4 trillion package. This is um, our trillion dollar package, and it likely will have much more. And it sounds like there are going to be elements of um, the House Financial Services requests, as well as Ways and Means requests. So we we have our feet in both of those, as well as the direct funding um, portion of it. So in terms of the Ways and Means Act, 
Uh, we were really talking with him about the short-term, the mid-term, and the long-term impacts on state and local governments. And we were saying, you know, um, there is still a tepid um, municipal bond market. The municipal liquidity fund has been set up. There's still a lot of questions about that. And what we need to make sure that the Ways and Means Committee does is introduce, put tools back in the toolkit that we have had taken away. Put advance refunding back in the toolkit, make sure bank qualified debt is still in there. And of course, direct pay subsidy bonds are included in their consideration as well. Um, so a few things um, I wanted to share with you. The chairman of the uh, subcommittee, Representative Thompson out of Contra Costa County, um, California, um, his question very specifically and very direct was, how has the movement of funding happened? Are you receiving the assistance promptly? And are, are there issues with the disbursement? Um, and I think that um, together with the other panelists, I think we were able to articulate a story where the $150 billion is, um, is very much appreciated, but certainly provides a bit of a frustration in an environment where um, the use of proceeds is, 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 is needed now, is needed eminently. And when it, with a dearth of guidance, it's very hard for organizations, for state and local governments, importantly, receiving the funds um, are, are challenged with. Now, what I did recently, of course, I asked several, organ, um, several um, eligible entities that I know received the funding, I asked them to send me questions that I could um, transmit then to um, the, the Treasury. And then I also transmitted those questions to Mr. Thompson's office. Um, the other question, another question um, that was brought up was by Ms. Delbinet out of uh, Washington State. Um, of course, Washington State has been hit very hard. And her questions were actually very interesting in that as you look going forward as much as you can, given sort of the social distancing environment, um, and as you're starting to bring back services, she was asking to sort of look in the future. If you're thinking about bringing services back that have been curtailed, um, how has this caused state and local governments to think about things and um, importantly, service delivery that can be done differently. Um, I think that um, her, her ask is very intuitive in that if we, if we craft a COVID-4 bill, we wanna make sure that we put in things that can not only impact the now, but have the potential to help state and local governments um, vision how they may be able to come out of this. Of course, we're in the crisis, we are imminent right now, she was asking for us, for a panelist to think forward. Um, and there were some um, really interesting conversations had by um, folks out of California and New York, of course, but also inside of the middle of the country about um, ways that um, we're re-envisioning how, um, uh, ways that we are envisioning that congressional representatives might be able to write into statutes ways that we can move forward from here. Um, another question that came up, um, Mr. Swazi, Wazi out of uh, New York um, was asking, and I noticed that this question came up in the chat box. Mr. Swazi is asking about um, a, uh, the fact is he is a representative in New York. Um, and so his consideration is, well, you know, the distribution of the 150 billion wasn't exactly fair to the hardest hit jurisdictions. And so his intention in the next bill is to consider infection rates um, being an indicator of distribution. Um, 
I'm not certain how far along that will make it into the fourth stimulus, but it certainly is an interesting logic that's kind of spreading around in Congress. People are talking about it. Um, the, the consideration there, of course, is that, um, you know, if you base that at the state level, it's not necessarily reflective of what's happening at the local level. Like you could have more of a pandemic um, challenge at the local level than you do at the state. Um, and then, of course, um, other considerations like um, there are other metrics of need um, that other that states could use as opposed to necessarily infection rates. So that was a very interesting question. Um, and uh, another question from Ms. Sewell out of uh, Alabama. Um, there was um, strong frustration on her part to um, the fact that she, it, there's, there's very little distribution from um, the state coffers to the local government. And so she was trying to better understand how the next bill might be able to be crafted to encourage a distribution of funds from the state level to the local government level. And last but not least, Dan Kildee, um, Representative Kildee out of Michigan, he represents um, uh, Flint and surrounding areas. Um, he also is a, um, he's a GFOA member <laughs> and he is a, um, he is a, uh, a past county commissioner. So he really does understand um, congressional state and, and, and at, at its core um, local government service provision. Um, his question was, um, zeroing in on water and water shutoffs and um, a better understanding of how the allocation for utility and um, a uh, sort of a safety net that's drawn into the fourth coronavirus uh, bill, the, the stimulus bill, that it has a um, specific regard to water um, and water provision and that it doesn't necessarily get sort of hidden into the SRS. Instead, it's a direct allocation. And I think that that's very important for him and he will likely advocate for that in the fourth bill. So I did wanna share that with you. It was um, a very positive call and a lot of folks who, uh, it shows a very strong leader representation that, um, that more assistance is needed directly um, to the various um, things that are happening at the public level, at the um, local state and public utility level. Um, second thing I wanted to touch on, uh, which we, um, have touched on before and there has been a new development. Um, so the Municipal Liquidity Fund. Again, if you recall, this isn't direct funding. This is instead a provision of the Coronavirus Relief Fund. I'm sorry, this is a provision of the CARES Act um, that provides a utility in the um, or a, a fund in the Federal Reserve to create a lending facility for state and local governments. Um, really quickly, they made some revisions to their initial liquidity facility um, and the revised term sheet came out on Tuesday. I know there's a fair amount of debt committee folks on the call. We picked it apart. <laughs> we talked about what's still missing, what still needs to come. Um, so sort of famously, the um, municipal liquidity facility uh, it has now been expanded. It's no longer just the states and the uh, local jurisdictions um, at 1 million and 2 million people. Instead, they've taken that threshold down a notch. They've said states, cities who are over 250,000 residents and counties over 500,000 residents could potentially borrow from this fund. So they've opened up the facility a little bit wider. The same eligible notes 
um, to be issued. Um, so TANS, TRANS, FANS, um, they're trying to ensure, again, that it's a short-term lending facility that impacts the front end of the yield curve. It is something that um, helps for jurisdictions and states to get over the hump, um, over the hump of the foreseeable future. Question is whether 36 months will actually cut it. So the term can be no longer than 36 months. Still eligible entities are the same, um, state, city, or county, um, but they have added in, as you can see at the bottom of this sheet, a multi-state entity, so a court authority, if you will. So those folks are now allowed to be in the mix. The one other thing that they entered or they added into the eligible issuer um, file is that they have limited it to um, investment grade. So it has to be triple B minus or better in order to access this facility. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, still same securities for the notes and use of proceeds. So you can use it for delayed revenues. You can use it for foregone revenues and you can use it for, um, you can use it for uh, a p &I on previously issued debt. Um, the other thing I wanted to make sure to um, mention is still in this uh, term sheet is that the eligible entities can borrow on behalf of an instrumentality of itself. So like a state could potentially borrow on behalf of a smaller city inside of it um, and access that facility above its 20% general fund threshold. What they have not answered is how that risk will be treated. Is that risk that the state then takes on um, by borrowing or accessing this facility on behalf of a smaller jurisdiction, is that risk borne by the state? Um, if you look into the FAQs, they answer that question very specifically. They say that yes, the eligible entity still bears the risk. So again, a challenge I think for our members, um, but we're certainly hoping that we're able to um, talk about a dial um, with them in the future. We'd, it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or thing, but potentially you could have um, a, 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 a spectrum of risk that then the eligible entity would be able to take on. Um, pricing is still kind of in the open and the FAQs, they note that it will be priced, it will be what they call penalty priced. Um, so um, a, a, an applicant into the municipal liquidity fund has to prove um, that of the other sources of capital, they did not, they have to essentially say that those, those bids were not market and that we need to make sure that we have access to this facility because we can't access anything else. It just is not within our capacity. So there's a credentialing process that has to happen um, on behalf of the issuer. And then last but not least, as we requested, we said, look, Federal Reserve, we, we understand what you're trying to do. We think we understand the policy objective that is putting out the third bowl of kibble. Um, but the real challenge here is, even if states were willing to borrow on behalf of local governments within them, even if that was a concept that could be used, local governments aren't going to know the challenge ahead of them by September 30th, which is the initial window close that they were trying to make sure that they have lent out all the money by September 30th. We requested the end of this year, but I certainly hope that there is an opportunity to push that out into the future. The other thing to um, with this, this is a term sheet that is the second iteration of the term sheet. I think that they are still taking comments and they are still listening to the stakeholder community. Um, the other thing that's 
Um, the stakeholder community, of course, includes us, which as, as issuers and potential borrowers from the municipal liquidity facility, but also other stakeholders include members of Congress. And um, it sounds as if I've been on several calls today where the um, chair of health financial services, Maxine Waters, may be crafting a bill to change this, or at least um, um, encourage the Fed to change the terms in certain terms. Um, think she's alone. I think that there are many other members of Congress who would like to um, change this. And I think that there are other letters that are kind of in the mix. So just FYI, that is a, um, that is a, uh, uh, one of the big revisions that came this week. I don't anticipate another, I don't know what I anticipate anymore, but I don't anticipate another term sheet next week. Um, but what I would say is that the debt committee is working very hard at considering maybe key triggers that they can focus on that would be easy to focus on that then would make this a reasonable alternative or a reasonable source of capital um, as the challenges ahead are realized. Um, and so with that, I wanted to turn it back over to Thomas who has updates for you on direct funding. And well, I see a lot of questions coming in and we'll be sure to address those. Yeah, for fear of not having time before and my attention being drawn by rapid fire alerts, let me uh, provide some more context about the uh, state and local uh, aid portion of the Menendez bill, the, the major infusion of cash that may be coming in the next bill. Uh, to address the questions about you know infection rates, uh, how are they going to dole that out? Yes, states will probably be treated as, as pass-throughs. However, there has been open discussion that they want to have in legislation that it's one of those they, they must distribute that they want to make it clear that there, there can't be anything slowing them down and making it harder for the, the smaller localities to get the funds that are going to the states. Uh, on top of that, part of the expansion of the availability and the access to funds is that population metrics. Uh, so before, we knew that applying directly, you had to have a population of at least 500,000 people uh, in a city or an urbanized county. They're going to drop that threshold all the way down to 50,000. Uh, so in, in terms of getting that direct aid, and again, they're trying to do it where we have three separate distinct tranches where we don't have any overlap, that's going to do, should do a good job of expanding things open for towns and cities that can go ahead and, and directly apply. Um, doubling back onto the, uh, what I was getting alerts over. So I've said before last week that, you know, the uh, grants, the money's out there. Right now, what we're seeing is the agencies and departments Sort of packaging up into individual programs and putting out those notices of funding. I'm going to go ahead and, and through the comments here. This is an example of the kind of stuff they're putting through here. Uh, this is what you can find again uh, on the coronavirus response page we have at gfa.org under the FEMA spot. We have $100 million available for firefighters, fire departments, fire districts for personal protection equipment. Um, on top of that, uh, the HHS, this happened while I was speaking before, uh, they're going to make available close to a billion uh, for uh, older adults is, is what the headline. I'm, I'm assuming that they're addressing uh, those in um, um, assisted living communities and, and whatnot. I have not had time to read through all of that just yet. I, I simply know that it's about a billion and it's through HHS. As soon as we're off this call, I'll be going through that and then putting it on our resource page as well. Uh, a couple other things to, to note, uh, we have, we've, We've heard uh, that revenue recognition is something uh, of, of a concern. We have an open line of communication with GASB. I have nothing to report at this very moment, 
but we do have the discussions going. So it's, it's not something that we're sweeping under the rug or anything. Um, the firefighters uh, availability funding there, that is through FEMA. Uh, so if you've been going through and, and, and applying on that side or, or what functions or processes you're using, it's going to be probably the same avenue there, uh, $100 million departments, districts, uh, you'll find their notice of funding again through, through our resource page. And I'll put the one up for the health and human services as well as soon as I can here. All right, well, yeah. That may be what I have for now. The, um, as soon as we get more more details on how this expansion, the population threshold from 550K what exactly they mean when they say that they want to ensure that the money that has gone to the states uh, it makes its way down to the local level you know that's that's a most paramount information that we could possibly provide um funding that's going to basically be a a, a bolstering of the 150 billion that came out of the cares act they are still going to use uh, some of the uh, entitlement and non-entitlement formulas for cdbg to dole out that money uh, so where your, your questions were on the state and local level before, uh, they're going to have uh, the, the, the same same formulas used where you have the 70, 30% share for entitlement versus non-entitlement. Again, I, I wonder aloud uh, if, if they're going to have something written in to ensure that states move the money in such a way uh, that it ameliorates some of the concerns we had before about money sitting there and, and not going out because you know people have questions about overlap and sort of the Venn diagram of, of, of funding and whatnot. Um, all the questions that you guys are putting through here, obviously this is all recorded. We copy all of these things. I have a nice uh, growing list uh, that keeps me up at night. And uh, as any time I can, I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, go back and get these things answered. My, my great hope here is that in the coming week or two that we can start to establish a, a network where we act as a conduit for the right kinds of contacts uh, so that as soon as there is a question, at the very least, we can point you in the right direction to somebody who we know will have the answer. Uh, but to be quite frank, I have come into scenarios where I, I get to the person who absolutely should have the information and they don't know uh, because things are just moving so fast. Uh, so, so bear with us. Uh, it's, it is incredibly difficult to be patient. I am incredibly impatient. So I definitely feel the urgency we all do. Um, again, any more questions, specifics, Things that are a real hang-up, uh, and we, you know, we know that the federal level they're probably not thinking of it. Those are exactly the kind of questions we want to get. Uh, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and, and pass it back to Maureen for a further update. So before we get into the Q and A, um, we also wanted to quickly discuss the headlines that came up this week regarding public pensions. Mitch McConnell was widely quoted as stating that public pensions are a challenge, and we've been hearing similar rhetoric from other congressional offices. Please understand that GFOA is the authority on public pension issues, and we continue to ensure that information, the information that is needed and required to get through any challenges is available on the go. And as for economic challenges being posed to states, that would really come down to communication that would be required to be done by you to your congressional offices. And for now, it really just comes down to politics. There's a lot of political positioning going on as negotiations continue on the 4th. Um, coronavirus relief fund. Um, Emily, if you don't want to add anything else, we could just jump into the Q&A. All right. Sure. Okay, so we have one here. Do we have an idea of how many states have distributed 
funds to localities and how many have not? Virginia is in the no column. That's funny, Kendall. I heard Virginia was in the yes column. So <laughs> um, I say that um, jokingly, and obviously we are aware of distribution funds in um, the distribution of funds in Alaska and in Washington, those that have kind of put out the, their plan. I've also heard um, Missouri and Virginia are pursuing distribution. Um, of course, you would know best, Kendall, um, and other jurisdictions, of course, in Virginia, but um, certainly hoping that there are, um, um, uh, uh, I know that the network of state treasurers is talking about how they may be able to do that. But of course, as was evidenced in the Select Revenue Subcommittee, it's not happening in Alabama. Um, and I'm sure there are other states where that that might be the case as well. But we're definitely going to make sure as soon as we get information from NASBO and from NAST, we'll distribute that out to you guys. Of course, we're trying to uh, make sure that we have a record of how the states are spending it so that you as locals, as you're implementing your money, that are your coronavirus relief funds um, that you have, that A, you don't overlap the funds, you don't you do the same thing twice, and B, that you have, um, I think, <laughs> some, some community and some solace in community um, that uh, the funds and the proceeds and how they're used are used within the guidance of the, uh, that's, been, that's been issued by the Treasury. Will the bill include funding for governments who don't participate in Social Security in addition to tax credits? Thomas, you want me to take that one? So, yeah. Yeah, so um, the Schweikert bill, um, which is the bill that addresses the um, uh, paid sick leave, that does not, that, that would only apply to employers public employers who pay social security. So those are those who are, are um, those are specifically referenced in the bill text. Now, as I understand it, there is an, a companion bill in the Senate. So um, usually when you say companion bills, it's identical text. Um, but as I understand it, there is a, there's a um, small difference between um, the house bill, which is shared, you know, obviously, uh, Initiative by Swikert. Um, in the Senate, I believe that the leader is Cassidy. Um, and I believe that there is some recognition for federal workers in that um, and uh, the provision of federal workers and employers to be included in the Senate bill. But again, it would relate only to those who do pay into Social Security. When looking at infection rates as part of a funding formula, are they looking only statewide or by jurisdictions? Statewide levels may be very different from local levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's getting into what we've been referring to with uh, writing into legislation that you know money that gets passed through the states has to go to certain areas and, and ensuring that there's sort of built-in guidelines uh, to, to make sure the intent of the legislation is followed in terms of infection rates and how that, I, I spend a lot of my time uh, going to various emergency response organizations and their websites and how they track this stuff. You know, COVID cases, um, closed cases, active cases, um, all the statistics, demographics, they have that down to county level. Uh, it seems very possible, very doable, if you will, that they could make, an av make avenues in this legislation to make sure that the, in effect, the cities, the hard hit counties, 
uh, are, are the ones getting the money. It was weeks ago that they have even county by county made maps, interactive maps, uh, where you can see projected most uh, vulnerable counties. You know, if they're able to to produce that, uh, then certainly you know it's at least possible that the information is there to to kind of make those those bumpers to ensure that the money goes to where it needs to go. So I'd also, oh, sorry, Maureen, um, I think that that question is an extremely, extremely good question, because if you look at a state and you see how the state has been impacted, well, um, I think you, it may be that a specific jurisdiction has been hit extremely hard. I'm thinking, of course, about New York. Um, now, um, that said, if you look at a jurisdiction within a state, of course, jurisdictions may have been, been hit just as hard sort of from a um, you know, pure statistics um, measurement. Um, and so I think that's why there's a little bit of, um, I, I think, discomfort around Mr. Swazi's plan, um, which is to, again, allocate the money to the states uh, with the most need. Um, because, I mean, if you kind of look at other states, there are other um, indicators of burden, and there are other indicators of how those states have been hit by the pandemic that aren't necessarily reflected in its infection rate. Um, you can think of homelessness, you can think of, sort of other indicators that sort of allow for you to understand the, the specific need and how large it might be. So, um, so that's why there is a challenge, I think, uh, and I, Kathy, I saw you ask that question. So it's like, I think that that is, um, I don't know that there is a great deal of people jumping onto that plan because there are different metrics, I think, that people are paying attention to. And I think this state-local government relationship is certainly being um, um, picked apart and, and, and really challenged by a lot of congressional offices right now. How seriously should we take statements that relief to the states should be conditioned on public pension reform? Um, so it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've seen that in the past. Um, of course, um, uh, Devin Nunez and his um, and his plan essentially his bill would <laughs> um, require public pension plans to. Um, to report a third funding figure at a federal funds discount rate of zero. And if they didn't, then the tax exemption was out. This has happened over the past several Congresses, if you recall. I can't remember the acronym of the of the bill number. But that, I mean, sort of the hinging on the the or hinging on the health of the pension plan is not new for Congress, that they are they are always exploring um, uh, 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 ways to have a metric. <laughs> for them to determine sort of health of 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 their jurisdiction of those states, um, and so I think to the extent I think the question is how seriously should we take that threat? I think we should take every threat from Congress very seriously, um, but I also think that the way that, as Maureen mentioned, I think that the way that the pensions were evoked earlier this week um, was a uh, was an interesting way to flesh out um, sort of a political a political positioning. Um, I think that parties want to say, well, that's 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 your initiative. No, that's your initiative. And so I think the political positioning was saying, well, you know, state and local government support is a democratic initiative. 
well, it's not really. I think we can tell <laughs> by all of the support that we have uh, throughout the halls of Congress that it is not a Democratic, it is not a Republican initiative. It is a whole Congress initiative. I think that's a very important thing that we take very seriously in the Big Seven and all of our all of our um, coordination on the Hill is that it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. Um, and it's also not necessarily a, a, a pension thing. Um, it is a whole health thing. It's a whole economic thing. And that's what we're approaching um, this next COVID or stimulus package as. What is the interest rate and how is it determined? So, so I, I think that's about the municipal liquidity fund. Um, and at this point, if you look in um, the FAQs that are in the chat box, just kind of set that up. There is a paragraph dedicated to determining the pricing, but it is a penalty price. Um, and it, which means um, what the Fed has told us is that it sits underneath um, a distressed market rate and it sits above a calm market rate. So it's somewhere between distressed market and regular markets. Emily, wouldn't you say that the stand-up of any MLF is still probably weeks away? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, as we've discussed before, the municipal liquidity fund again—that's the—that's the, the 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 Federal Reserve facility that you you could potentially borrow from. Um, it is a brand new facility. It is unprecedented. It has never been utilized before. It is the vision of this Congress. And so um, not only does the municipal liquidity fund not have, I mean, right now, I think they've got a, a team of five working on visioning it. Um, they have just, as you can see in the FAQs, they have just acquired um, PFM um, as their administrative agent. So that means PFM is going to play an integral role in clearing um, borrowers into the program. So, so that element has been set up. Another element that still needs to be set up is the underwriting process. How is the underwriting process going to happen? If it is a primary offering um, that is going to um, originate, of course, on our side, but then um, is going to be bought by the Federal Reserve, then maybe there needs to be a broker dealer, an underwriter, an underwriter's counsel, like all of those things. The legal um, establishment hasn't been made yet. So uh, we requested that it be set up by the end of May. Um, and I, I just, um, we will keep you posted, but my, my uh, gut is telling me that that is not, it's not going to be set up by May 30th. <laughs> I believe this is our last question. Did we seek treasury guidance if CARES money could be spent to repay ML for interest? The guidance says we cannot use it for revenue replacement, but that we can use it for COVID related expenditures. Would this be a way to access CARES money we may have to send back? I think that's a great question for the Treasury. Um, and I think that's a very, that's, that's something I've heard before. Um, an interest expense is technically an expense, is it an unbudgeted expense that was incurred after September, I'm sorry, March 27th. And, um, it is not listed. I read carefully on um, the prohibited uses of funds. It is not listed. Interest expense is not listed as a prohibited use of the funds. So I think, given that, 
there's no explicit allowance to use it that way, but there's also no explicit um, uh, definition that you cannot use it as an interest expense. So that's um, I, I I, that is part of the suite of questions that we have sent to the Treasury. And I believe that wraps it up for questions. Great. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us again this afternoon. I hope you have a great weekend. And um, again, thanks for all the kudos for Mike. I will pass them along and hope to have pictures for you on Monday.